Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 16. We are reading verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them, fe- let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us ears to hear and that we would accept all that you say and that you would drive these lessons of difficult things deep into our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Binaries, black and white, this way or that way, life or death, these binaries are not too popular in the modern world. We have a world full of options, and we don't care for restrictions in our thinking. It's just too limited. It's 
too primitive. It's not sophisticated for, uh, enough for us inside of our own cultural context. This is the case across a whole number of issues, but especially when it comes to religion, that binary thinking, black and white, saying this way or that way, it's just way too limited. And so when it comes to talking about matters like heaven and hell, binary thinking is just simply not popular today. We tend to be very allergic to it. Even those who assert and believe such things don't like to talk about it. But the thing is, with Jesus, he was not shy in talking about binary matters, especially things like heaven and hell. And he does so very clearly inside of a parable this morning, and it's a parable that's straight on to address particular sets of issues that afflict and infect the people of God. Now, there is an important caveat, though. Jesus does speak of heaven and hell a good bit. But the bulk and majority of the times that Jesus speaks about hell and God's wrath and God's judgment is Jesus is not speaking to those who are far off and alienated from Him by living a wild and licentious life. If you read the Gospels carefully and you look at the instances when Jesus speaks of hell, he normally is speaking to the religious authorities. He's speaking to those who were the heirs of the covenant, to those who had obligations to the covenant, to those who taught and led others. That yes, most of Jesus' references to judgment were to those who already shared his worldview, and that there were two different destinies on option, that there was a binary reality, a black and a white. And Jesus turns to that community and he speaks of the dangers of judgment. Because particularly with the Pharisees, Jesus had run into many problems. And today, He continues to speak to His church about those same problems. Problems that deal with who we are willing to associate with. How we understand the nature of God. And then what we'll see today is how the church relates to mammon or money or possessions, the things that sustain life. You'll notice in chapter 16, verse 14, that Luke provides us the important caveat with how to understand the parable that Jesus tells today. He says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Him. The Pharisees didn't like the company that Jesus kept. They didn't, didn't like His teaching about the nature of God and their need for repentance. And then Jesus begins to speak about money because He understood and knew their hearts that they were lovers of money. And they didn't want to hear it. They were self-justified. They were the important power brokers who were also the religious conservatives in their world. And Jesus is attempting to break up that ground. Look what He says in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so Jesus is speaking in binary realities in order to wake them from their spiritual stupor. He wants to make a point to a religiously self-satisfied community 
who thinks they're under no threat, who sees themselves as the faithful, as those who are dedicated to the service of God. And Jesus wants to make exactly the opposite point. He's attempting to break up hard ground. But what exactly is the problem? What precisely is Jesus going after here? It's really one simple thing that He drives after. It's this, that our possessions and our pleasures, originally given to us by God, can master us. We have to remember that for Jesus, it's not the stuff in the world that is sinful. It's our affections for the stuff that is in the world. And this is what goes wrong inside of God's good creation, that God gives us good gifts to enjoy and to find pleasure in and to then offer thanks to Him through. But what so often happens is that that mammon, that stuff that sustains our lives, those pleasures and those joys turn around to master us and we become lovers of it. It's what Jesus' diagnoses about the Pharisees, that they had fallen in love with God's good gifts. That now their loves were disordered, and they were all messed up then in their relationship with God, but they couldn't even see it. And so Jesus tells a story. He begins in verse 19 this way, "...there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day." It's actually a magnificent description of a rich man whose name were, were not given, but he was clothed in purple, which was extremely rare, and only the truly rich and the truly wealthy of the ancient world could obtain it. It came from very few sources, and so supply was very low, and demand was high amongst those who had money in order to distinguish themselves. Their world operated in a way similar to our world where by your clothing you could distinguish yourself from everyone else and give yourself a social prominence and a social importance. And this man was keen on doing so. He clothed himself in purple. But also you'll notice that he wore fine linen. The translators have actually softened this up for you a bit, but linen was the undergarment. And so it is as if Jesus has said, this man wore purple and fancy underwear. Head to toe, he was decked out. He was a clothes horse. He gave himself to this and to the image that it projected in the world around him. But then we find this other description that Jesus gives, and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now the word feasting in the Gospel of Luke is used on many occasions, but and oftentimes very positively that the people of God were to enjoy feasts and banquets and celebrations, and Jesus participated in those Himself. And God Himself is not in any way despising of that. But what is it about this man that's different? It is a feasting every day. In the Jewish world, the way this would have been heard is that this man didn't keep Sabbath. And he also never said no to himself. He never denied himself anything. He never stepped back from his sumptuous lifestyle, but always gave himself to the full. And in his purple clothes and his fancy underwear and his sumptuous feasting every day, we gain a composite picture of a man who is in love with the world. Mammon has captivated him. It's taken him into its service. 
And so rather than using God's gifts to then serve God, he's become the servant of those gifts. He feels impervious to many dangers and insecurities in life. But actually, here he is exposed to some of the most extreme dangers that the human being can face. And friends, one of the deepest challenges for us is that we live in the wealthiest culture in the history of the world. And for many of us, we read this parable and think that it doesn't apply to us because we say, well, I don't wear the finest clothing and don't have fancy underwear like that. I don't sumptuously feast like that. And that may be the case, but it doesn't mean that we're off the hook. Because it's not simply the ultra-wealthy who are the target of what Jesus is saying. He's speaking into, into the extreme, but He's speaking to all. That it can also just be the love of money and the aspiration for it that is the disease. Or it can be those who possess it and then how they use it. But all of us come under questioning and interrogation by Jesus' storytelling here about what master do we serve? Which master do we give ourselves over to? Who are we devoted to? And we have to answer that question. And that's not a question that we answer just one time in life and then we're done with it. No, you never step away from that question of what is mastering you. Because the thing is, is that wealth and mammon is sneaky and it will slip into the back door and take over your life in a way that you never even expect. This is the subtle temptation and power of wealth and money of mammon to go from being a good gift to being a bad master. Yesterday, my middle son had a swim meet. And as you know, the weather is absolutely brilliant right now. And I'm wearing that weather on my forehead. Because at the side of the pool, it was cool and it felt great. And I went back and forth from sitting in the shade to sitting in the sun in order to warm up. And as the hours dragged on, I thought to myself, it would probably be wise to wear sunscreen. I'm 40 years old. I know how sun works. But I was thinking, no, it's just nice. It's pleasant today. Surely the sun won't burn. And friends, that's the same thing we do with our money. We think, no, it'll become extremely apparent. It'll be hot and we will burn when we have a disordered affection. And the thing is, is that it can work very subtly. It can feel good. It can feel right. Society and your relationships around you may be approving of what you're doing and saying, no, you're going in the right direction. You're not in any danger. And you will justify yourself off of that. That was Jesus' critique of the Pharisees. That they were self-satisfied and they were easily justifying their behaviors when they were in love with the wrong things. And friends, you can be in deep trouble. And that we all have to put ourselves under the bar of this interrogation and listen carefully to Jesus. That He says, no man can serve two masters. And for us, each in a regular way, to ask ourselves that question, what is it that we value? What are our priorities? What do our bank accounts reveal about us if they were to become public? What would be said? Friends, 
this is where Jesus wants to go because He wants to free you from this bad master who will only serve you in poor ways and then lead to a poor destiny. Because as He tells the story, it further then unfolds what the discipleship of one who follows after mammon looks like. And there's two specific things that Jesus does with the parable. First, He's saying this, that we become spiritually blind. After He tells us about the rich man who wore his purple clothes and his fancy underwear and who feasted sumptuously, in verse 20 He says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, in Hebrew, the name Lazarus means the one who God helps. Jesus normally doesn't assign names to characters in His parables, but He does so here, and it's with great intentionality. He's demonstrating that God is the one who helps this poor, crippled man who's laid at the gate in order to collect alms. This was His livelihood, was the charity of others. His body was riddled with problems. It's obvious that He can't walk, and He has sores that the dogs come and lick. And friends, this is not cute. If you've ever traveled to the third world, this is the kind of dogs that Jesus is referring to. They are the ones that roam the streets. They're not your dogs. I remember being over at one of the members of our, of our congregation at their home with Naphtali Mata, who is our missionary in Kenya. And the dogs came through the room, and he said, no, those are not dogs. Those are children. <laughs> That we have to understand the dogs that are attending to this man and licking his sores made him unclean. That when Jesus says that Lazarus had bad things in this life, it was really bad. He was completely exposed. He was, was without any resources. And here he is being licked by the dogs. That was the only ones who would care for him. That the rich man outside of his gate, he got nothing from him. That he was longing for scraps from his table. He was in a desperate situation. His life is completely broken open. And the rich man was uncaring for those on the margins of life who he had responsibilities to. He didn't see him. He was spiritually blinded by his sumptuous feasting. And that's what happens. But we see then as the parable matures and evolves that both of these men have died. Lazarus has gone to Abraham's side where the picture is of Lazarus now reclining at a feast at a U-shaped table that would have been in that cultural context. And there he is lying on Abraham's chest. This was the sign of affection and friendship. And from a great distance, the wealthy man, the rich man, sees Lazarus. And he addresses Abraham. And did you note what he said? Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to me to give me a drink of water. It's easy for us to miss. But even under judgment, this rich man is still spiritually blind. You see, his 
neatly structured class orientation is still firmly intact. Where he's telling Lazarus, his social inferior, to come and serve him. And we can miss it completely. That here this man is under the judgment of God and in a misery that he recognizes. And yet he is still perpetuating his view of the world. Send that one to come and serve me in my need. Friends, that he's not healed. He's not repentant. And many people find Jesus' challenging at this point very challenging. How are we to understand these binary realities of heaven and hell? And this man under the judgment of God. And what is so important for us here is to recognize that this is exactly the part that the man has chosen for himself. It's what he desires in his unrepentance and his lack of change. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain perhaps famously says it best. He says, The damned are in one sense successful. Rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. And friends, that's the reality. That's where mammon will take us. It takes us into a self-enslavement that feeds itself, and then we don't see the need for change or even repentance, and even down into judgment, we persist in our narcissistic, selfish ways. That's the spiritual blindness that Jesus wants to address. When I was a young pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, I worked at a rather affluent church with the younger uh, singles and young marrieds. They were in their 20s. And many of these young couples had inherited large sums of money from their families, and there were certain social expectations on them. And one of the regular and frequent conversations that I had as a young pastor was the question of, Chuck, should I join the country club? To join the, the country club in Memphis was a rather rigorous process, and it involved a great deal of money. There was a down payment that would be made, and during the years that I was in Memphis, they were discounting it. And they had cut it in half. It was still a large sum that was required. And so my friends would come and say, Chuck, should I join the country club? Every pastor learns quickly that our job is not to tell people what to do. We're not going to tell you whether it's a yes or whether it's a no. But this crisis that has come upon these young men who are trying to find their way through the world and ask important questions was then to search their hearts. And it was to give a series of questions about what they loved and what they valued and what they would then do with that country club membership, and whether it was important or not, and should they think it was that important. One of my friends asking that question, as we talked about the things that he needed to ask of himself, the interrogation that needed to go on inside, he noted that, yes, well, the thing that disturbs me is that, you know, I will pay this large sum of money, but then there's a monthly amount of money, and there's a, then a commiserate expectation that follows it. 
and there is a $400 bank service charge each month that I must maintain by ordering food from the club. And he was getting into the fine matter of the commitments that this club membership would bring into his life, and that it wasn't just a membership, that it was a way of life. And as he interrogated further, he began to ask himself why he wanted that, and did he need it, and what was he valuing in doing so? And friends, that is what is so important for us. Jesus is not condemning being wealthy. Luke actually writes inside of his gospel, he enfolds many, many stories about Jesus' teachings on wealth. And do you know why he does that? Because Luke was commissioned by a man named Theophilus. You find us in the first four verses of the gospel. A wealthy man who was Luke's patron. And Luke is out to warn Theophilus of the dangers of mammon and money. And he's out to direct him to love God more than he loves God's gifts. And friends, so there was no right or wrong answer for my friends who were seeking advice about whether to join the country club or not. But there are right and wrong motives, and there are right and wrong loves that can inhabit our hearts. And there is a right and wrong response to Jesus in his interrogating of us. We can hold that off and justify ourselves and say, well, everybody else does it. It's certainly right, and I'm not as bad as those other people. Or we can invite Jesus in and we can let Him do the interrogation and ask, what master are we serving? And when spiritually blind, our momentum is very low to ask those questions. And this is what happened to Lazarus. And so here he is locked up in his narcissism and self-focus. He didn't see Lazarus through his life. He didn't care for the needs of the poor. And then even inside of his judgment, he doesn't see things rightly. But the second thing that happens to us is that we also become spiritually deaf. You see that Lazarus, after he's turned down for his request for or sorry, the rich man, after he's turned down for his request to receive water from Lazarus, he says this to Father Abraham in verse 27. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear, hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be con convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And do you see what the rich man was saying? He was saying that it was a problem of information. That there was a lack of revelation. That if only they had something extraordinary in front of them, they would be lured away from loving the world. And do you hear Jesus' response? That there's no lack of information. That there's no lack of anything extraordinary. That even if someone should rise from the dead, and certainly He's speaking of Himself, they will not be turned. That the love of the world is not for a lack of information. 
that that's simply not what animates love for the world. And so Jesus doesn't let us off that easy. He won't let us justify our love for the world as by saying it just wasn't clear. He says, no, that they have the law and the prophets. And the prophets have been extremely clear. Deuteronomy 15.11 about caring for the poor in the land and your brother who's fallen on hard times. Their duties were extraordinarily clear. And Jesus says, if they haven't listened to that, how will they listen to the one back from the dead? And Jesus here is undoing the excuses that we tend to pile up. He's undoing them one by one, and He's revealing where love for the world arises from. It arises from a captivation with our security and our pleasure and our own well-being. And being distracted by that present tense and not thinking about our orientation to God and also to the world to come. In The Great Divorce, Lewis once again is very helpful in talking about these binary matters. He says, Good beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beat on the ears of the deaf, but they cannot receive it. Their fists are clenched, their teeth are clenched, their eyes fast shut. First, they will not. In the end, they cannot open their hands for gifts or their mouth for food, or their eyes to see. That we refuse to hear. Not for a lack of information, and not for sound waves not beating upon our ears, but we refuse to hear because we're in love with something else. That's the ground Jesus is trying to break up with the religious community of His day. And that's the ground He has to continue to break up as we put ourselves under His claim that there can be no other masters. But living in the wealthiest culture in the history of the world, what do we do? What is our response to be? Because we all know the temptation of being lured away by a love for the world and serving other masters. How do we respond and friends, this is the connection between last week's sermon at the beginning of Luke 16 with the dishonest manager and what Jesus says here in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Is that the dishonest manager squandered what had been given to him and he used it for his own purposes. Jesus was telling the story of sin. But then we saw that it was an ingenious fraud that he pulled off where he wagered on the master's mercy. And he was betting the house that the master would forgive him because he had made something great of the master's name. And so he had fully put his trust in his master that his master would be kind and gracious and merciful. And friends, that's what we have to do. When we find that our affections at different points of the life going in and out with the tide, being given over to other masters, we have to remember the nature of our God. And we have to return to Him in repentance, asking Him for help. Because we remember here, Lazarus' name, the one who God helps. He was a humble man. He wasn't commended to God because he was poor, but he had learned to trust God in the midst of his distress. 
And friends, no matter our life circumstances, whether they are well-appointed or not, that is what Jesus would have us be. Why He gives the man Lazarus a name in His story? Because He's commending him to us. The one who God helps. So in your riches or in your poverty, we must learn to look to Him in that way. Not falling in love with the world and not serving the world, but giving ourselves wholly and completely to this God who's wholly and completely given Himself to us in His Son. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for Your help. We know how subtle the love of this world can be, that it can take over our affections and it can captivate us. Help us to recognize the subtle ways in which that happens and may we be willing to hear our Lord Jesus in all of His interrogating questions and may we receive those and examine our hearts. And God, would You set us free and would we wager on Your mercy? And will we have no other masters in our hearts because we know that we have one good, gracious, kind, and loving master. So liberate us. May we serve you with all that we are and all that we have. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.